everybody, we are back with a new episode of Working It Out. This is a very exciting episode today with Gary Gullman. Uh, but first, I want to send a quick shout out to all of our friends who came to the Worldwide Comedy Pizza Party. Uh, this is unprecedented. We're doing an two encore performances in case you missed it we're doing april 16th and 17th because uh, the friday saturday shows sold out so quickly that we decided well why don't we add some a different weekend so uh, april 16th and 17th friday and saturday 9 p.m eastern tickets at burbigs.com today on the show we have one of the greatest living comedians he has many many comedy specials and albums the most recent of which is uh, something of a masterpiece. It's called The Great Depression. He speaks um, very, very honestly about uh, his bouts with depression in very funny and very honest ways. Um, we, we get really into craft in this episode. We get really into working out jokes. It's, it's a very good interplay of, of, of true criticisms of jokes, which is... Uh, which is so fun to do, and I love Gary Gullman, and I hope you enjoy my chat with the great Gary Gullman. You know, it's funny, I was re-watching The Depression, it's like, it's such a good special, it's so timely, of course, now. Oh, thanks. Uh, because I feel like we're all... Even people, I, I've struggled with mental health for a long time. I feel like even people who aren't struggling with mental health previously are dealing with it perhaps for the first time. Yeah. And it's like, it just feels like, gosh, it's like, first of all, how are you holding up? Second of all, how what advice would you give for people struggling with uh, mental health and depression issues right now? I mean, I've, I've been very grateful that my my health has stood up my mental health has has stood up during during this because any type of interruption to your routine and the way you go about your day and and a lot of the things that i used to maintain my mental health were interrupted or or changed so i i can't go to the gym every day so i had to make adjustments and i mean the thing that you can do right away is get out of the house. And if you have yeah. a, a, a loved one who is suffering, drag them, drag them out of the house and, and get them moving a little bit. I, I think that's the, the quickest thing. But outside of that, I, I think it's, it's very important to, to speak with a professional about these things and, and have somebody who can guide you through the the, the the great thing that I always say is there's there's never been a better time to be mentally ill than right now as <laughs> as, as as far as the the treatments go there are, there are so many treatments and there are new things learning every day so I, I can remember it at my worst just thinking don't give up right before they come up with a a a cure or, or or a treatment that's effective or that will work and and so I I think we're we're very lucky because when, for instance, my 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 grandmother was was bipolar in the 1920s and there wasn't a lot you could you could do with that and it was it was it must have been very very frustrating and very sad for her family to watch this this vibrant woman fall fall apart in front of their faces. It's just tragic. I think about that with my sleepwalking all the time. It's like I sleepwalked through a second story window, crashed through it, broke through it, oh, I know. ended up in the emergency and it's emergency room. And it's like sometimes I think, well, 50 years ago, before there was sleep science, before there were sleep studies at the hospital and a wing, you know, where they study these things, they would have put me in an asylum and said, like, right. I think that's yeah. it. I think that's it for him. Yeah, and there would be kids touring your your cell that was spread set up just for you, and they would say, "This is the man who sleepwalks." <laughs> and it would be oh gosh, it would be, it would be tragic because everybody would just say, "Well, I'm glad that's not me." It's so funny because that's in some ways your special and and sleepwalk with me have that in common, which is like 
you're confessing something to people so that they feel more comfortable expressing that about themselves. And I'm, I can only imagine that from your special, because it's so good, is you've, you must have had such an, an outpouring of people sharing their stories with you. Maybe it's too much. I, I would say that it's a, at a very manageable level so that I can, I can, I mean, some of the things, and I'm sure you get these too, some of the, the things are just heartbreaking. And if I were to respond to every one of the most yes. heartbreaking, it, it's, it's just really, it's difficult. I remember our, our friend, um, Chris Gethard before the special aired, I sat down with him and he, he showed me some of the things he was getting and I, and I've gotten similar, similar things. And it's just, it's, um, I, I do my best to respond, but, but it, it, uh, it, it takes a lot out of you. Yeah. Chris Gethard, of course, did a, a special on HBO also called career yeah. suicide, where he talks about, uh, depression as well. And, yeah, I've toured with Chris a lot over the years, and and yeah, he gets a an extraordinary amount of people. <laughs> a lot of people come up to him about depression. They come up to me about sleepwalking. It's like a oh yeah, it's like a it's like a big convention of yeah. mental health oh, awareness. I, I know, I know, I I I I think about that that it's it's a comedy show that ends up in group therapy. Yeah, when when, when I would do the. The meet and greets, which I, I, I mean that that seems to be one of the bigger sacrifices we'll we'll have to make. Those meet and greets were so, so special after the the Great Depression aired, where I would would connect with people, and some people were in tears or would hug me, and it was it was really it was so moving. One of the things that that hits me when I'm watching, and I just jotted these down these jokes down today when I was watching the spash. You call it the spash? <laughs> no, no, because I, I, uh, there was this, uh, there was this expression, there was this expression that the, the Mary Tyler Moore staff used to have when they were writing and they used to say Nakamura, which yeah. meant like, Gilding the lily, like you, oh, would, you okay. had gone. Sure, sure, yeah, it's too yeah, much. You're, you're do, yeah, it's too <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but yeah, for yeah. some reason, the the word was Nakamura, which I I think is oh, funny. Really I'd love funny. to know the, I'd love to know the origin, unless it's racist. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> um, you and I both grew up in Massachusetts. We have this a lot of stuff in common. Where you comment on this thing that when I you know when I saw you do the joke, I just go. Oh, he, you know, he got there first, which is the thing that comics have when we watch each other is we go, ah, Gary got there first. There, go, there goes that. I know. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a difficult part of being a, a comedian. But the, but the one that got me was uh, in middle school, you got the water fountain and kids push each other's heads into the yeah. water fountain and they call it a prank and today it would be called a felony assault <laughs> i was like oh that's that's yeah. a perfect joke oh thanks man i i i appreciate that i i mean that's one of those things that that had i mean i, I don't know if we've discussed this but i, I have kind of a, a a part store or a warehouse of jokes over the years that oh. they don't they don't fit into a joke on their own, but they can fit into bigger jokes. And you you go to those, and and that was that was one of those. It was just I I needed something to describe the the tension and the the stress of of being a kid and what was what was going through my head a lot was was trying not to get hurt all the time. It's so funny because like that thing you're saying is. Uh the thing you're describing as you have these sort of joke pieces or parts of jokes or observations and they're in the notebook. I always call it just like, yeah, I've had that in a notebook for 10 years, Yeah, but it sounds like you and I uh, have that in common where it's like, where I, I don't think most people when they're watching you would know that that's how you're arriving at your construction. I, I, I forget who it was, but, Maybe it was Steve Martin in his Born Standing Up where he said, you'll, somebody told him, I think, you'll use everything, the banjo you play, the magic tricks, 
you'll use, you'll use everything. And I, I think that that is a, is a similar feeling I get when I, when I think about just, just how much work we put into our, our writing and the idea. I mean, I'm just grateful that I have a good enough memory and, uh, uh because I, I'm not the, especially organized as far as knowing what's in every notebook. I just, I just know the, the, what I have so far on a, on a million different topics and I can draw on that and, and, and occasionally I'll, I'll have over the years typed it up. But the other thing is a, a lot of these things you're carrying from notebook to notebook and that I know, right. So, so I, I have instances of certain jokes and notebooks from the nineties, but they're still making their way into notebooks in, in 2021. When I was thinking about your jokes, I, I had a, like a very open-ended question, which of course has no answer, which is, uh, d do you view jokes as uh, art or science or mathematics or even music? Oh man, all of those things, right? I think that, I think there's science because there are literal formulas. Mm -hmm. um, and then there, like I was thinking about this today and I don't know, I think I know why because I, I'm I'm writing a book and I was using the rule of three within the within sure. the book, trying to give some symmetry to the. It's not three examples, but just three three things. And I thought, but in my joke, sometimes I like to to subvert or or short circuit the rule of three. By if you have a savvy enough audience, they're expecting a third one. You slip it in on the second one, and you get a you get more of a surprise on the on the laugh, um, because that's 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 the science of it is trying to figure out what everybody is thinking and not not say that. Although there are comedians who you know what their punchline is going to be, and they still make you laugh. So so then there's music because there's rhythm, there's yeah. math, there's math because there are a, a, a cer certain aspects of it that are similar to a, to a geometrical proof. I'll, I'll put a nerd alert warning on this episode. <laughs> so in case, there are no, in case you're not a nerd, this might just be gibberish <laughs> to you. Yeah. Um, if I were to guess what your process is, because we're friends, but I don't, I'm not inside your process, but but I'll I'll tell you part of my process. We're we we're friends from the comedy cellar, and so I watch your set sometimes, and you watch my set sometimes. But like, when I'm at the cellar, what I'm trying to do is figure out how few words I can use to convey a humorous idea, and then figure out how many words I can use to convey the same idea and then figure out the sweet spot between those two versions. Yeah. Is that close to your process or is your process different from that? I think I'm doing the same thing that you're doing, except that I, I don't have the concern about the fewest number of words eventually. Um, but the sweet spot is what I'm, is what I'm looking for eventually, because we know that certain sentences and certain words and certain jokes within jokes can be the the JP Buck from Conan always says those are those are uh, speed bumps and they're taking away from the the overall laugh that you're getting. So this sounds like math, but we're doing it at this point. These things that we used to consider and write, we're doing it intuitively, which is the, which is the key. But it takes however long it takes to get to that point. This is, I'm going to have to put a, an extra nerd alert on this part of the show. <laughs> right. You have crossed a line. Yeah. You're in Massachusetts where we grew up. Uh, they would call the thing you. A, that they would say about people like me. He's, he's book smart. Book smart. Yeah. Yeah. You're book smart, Gary, but you're not street smart. I'm street smart. I'm street smart. I know how to break into things using a credit card or a brick. <laughs> Stepping away from my conversation with Gary Gullman to send a shout out to our friends at Helix Mattresses, or as my daughter calls it, the Huix. <laughs> the Huix mattress. She loves it. Uh, we love it. 
I'm really picky about mattresses and sleeping arrangements because I have a, a serious sleep disorder. Uh, uh, it's the best mattress I've ever slept on. Um, you, you can go to helixsleep.com slash burbigs to get your own Helix mattress. You take their two-minute sleep quiz, they match you with a customized mattress, and you'll get the best sleep of your gosh darn life. Helix was awarded number one best overall mattress pick by GQ Magazine and Wired Magazine in 2020. They have free shipping and a 10-year warranty. You can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. The best 100 nights of your life. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our Working It Out listeners at helixsleep.com slash burbigs. And now back to the show. So we do this thing called the slow round. And uh, and so one of the questions we ask is like, what do you have a memory on a loop from childhood that isn't a story, but it's just in your head sometimes? People don't usually believe this when I tell them, but when I was eight years old, my mom, we had this, this toy catalog that I can't, think came from Sears and it had... It was it was basically Playboy, but for toys. It just had had these <laughs> these great photographs of really great toys and yeah. And and I recall I has, recall this exact thing, by the way. Yeah, the, Sear, the I, Sears I, catalog. Sears catalog is like a major part of my childhood. Yeah. Okay, so the the toys and it, and it would come out every Christmas. But this was the first year that I I had access to it. I don't I don't know why. And I would I would bring it into my room. And one of the things I wanted, but all these things were way out of our 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 budget. But I wanted a, a it was a set of bunk beds that looked like a an old timey circus cage for a for a lion. <laughs> and. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I would, uh, I would be a lion. But then some days I'd be the lion tamer, and I, I just wanted that. And then there were there were just things like the, the Lego collections that were were they were probably thirty dollars, but w- were just incredible. An entire city, and with the with the cars, and, and they were first starting to introduce the little Lego people. That was a, a big thing. So I just I would make lists and adjust them and and. I had really gotten so excited about this magazine. I would look at it every day. And one day I came home and it was gone. And I asked my mother where it is. And she said she loaned it to uh, this woman, Wendy, who lived across the street. And her his her daughter and I were like best friends. And her, she also had a younger son. And I would play with him. And 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 I was, I was incensed that my mother had loaned this. And also I felt like these kids were going to get the toys that I wanted. And it's, it's, it, anyhow, I, I said, well, I want it back. My mother said, well, well, ask Wendy for it. And I, I called up Wendy and I, and I yelled, give me back that toy catalog or I'm calling the police. Oh my God, no. And, and I went over. Oh my gosh. And she brought it to the door and she was British. And she said, here you go, love. And I, and I, I said thanks, and I ran back to my house. And and as I was doing it, I'm like, I'm like the the, the worst little kid in the in the world. I'm, <laughs> I'm stealing, oh, I'm stealing toys, and and it, it was just I, I I can't get the I can't get the story out of my mind because it it's such it's it's a combination of jealousy yeah. and rudeness and and and. And impulsivity. I mean, it's yes, it's a kid, but at the same time, I, 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 um, I don't like that kid. It's so complex. It's like it's so funny because you're writing a book, and the book that I would recommend to you as you're writing a memoir is Mary Carr's book, The Art of Memoir. Oh, I re- yeah, I read that. Like, like <laughs> I read it. I read it last <laughs> last January before the before the pandemic. Okay. I yeah, it's it's terrific. Yeah, and the the other the other thing that I read at the very start was Bird by Bird. Oh, I've never read that one. Yeah, that is that is terrific, and that's by Anne Lamott. And okay. so that's that's a terrific book about about 
writing and and I mean mainly you just want to get over the idea that you are or for me that I am so bad at this every day yes. and everything I'm reading is just crap and you find out that no this is this is all all part of it you have to it's the, that Shawshank thing you have to you have to crawl through 500 yards of shit yes. to to find any any daylight that's fascinating because it's like I, I was asked that recently. What, you know, what what did you fail at during the pandemic? Someone said to me, and uh, in an interview. Oh, I read that in the New York Times today. And the, yeah, and I go, I go everything. <laughs> I go, I, I fail at everything every day. I mean, I write hundreds, hundreds of pages of garbage. Oh. I, mean, I can't tell you how many jokes I go through that are complete failures. Oh, I know, I know. It, it reminds me of this this poet, Lowell, who said that poetry is this thing where you write a thousand bad poems for every good poem, and you can never find an ending. And that is the thing. I can never find an ending to a joke. It's heartbreaking. There is no true ending to a joke, though, if you, if you no, think I about know, it. No, I know, I know. Because that, that was a great lesson. Because the way I think about jokes is like, you have your setup, which is something that's true and we all agree upon. You have your punchline, which is your right turn into something that's surprising but inevitable. And then you have, theoretically, a tag and then a second tag, which is an elaboration on the, fl- the idea. It's a flourish on the main central idea. However, you look at someone like Stephen Wright, uh, one of the great comedians, and he defies that structure entirely. So he'll he'll say a setup and then he'll move on. Yeah. He'll say a setup and yeah. a punchline and he'll move on. He'll say a setup, a punchline, and then he'll go tag, 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 tag. And then he'll be into another, then you'll realize you're zooming out into a larger story that you didn't even know that you were in. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that, that man... He changed everything. I I think. I I, I mean. I I just he, from the first time I I heard him, I. I just re- remember thinking nobody nobody can ever do this. This I mean he's singular. He's the reason I do stand up comedy. Wow. I saw him live. Yeah. I mean. I've never I've never yeah. even met him. I've never met him. Oh, yeah. I I was in the same the same green room with him one time and I wanted it to be organic if I met him. I didn't yeah. want to rush him and <laughs> and nobody nobody introduced me to him. So I I, I never met him. But um yeah, I I know that your early stuff was was more concise like that. And yeah. and now you're a storyteller. But I, I figured that that he was an influence. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's like that thing. It's uh, it's it's a quote that's been said by a million people, but I think the Miles Davis version is famous. Is like it takes years to figure out how to sound like yourself. Wow! Oh my word! I love that. And I feel like I started out in comedy trying to sound like Stephen Wright and Mitch Hedberg, and at a certain point, I go, "Wait a minute! I'm Mike Perbiglia." <laughs> Oh, I know. And it took like ten years to figure that out. <laughs> but but it's it's important to have those sort of those training wheels. Like I yeah. I used to I used to ask myself, well, how would how would Paul Reiser go about this this joke? What would he what would he include? How would he deliver this? And 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 it would it was it was very helpful early on. And eventually, you shed it, and you and you you. But it, you're usually the last person to know. Somebody will say, "Oh, that that sounds like you. That is that is very Berbiglian." Yeah, yeah. I never think about it that way. But like, and there's definitely a Gary Goldman type of joke. Is there a way that you would describe a what a Gary Goldman joke is? <laughs> oh no, I, I mean because it's I, I I always feel like it's a it's a combination of the different things that I that I fell in love with about about comedy, but I, I would say that it, it, it generally squeezes out all the, all the juice or eats all the meat <laughs> off the, off yeah. the 
bone. But, but again, that goes to the fact that I needed to, I needed to build an act and fill time. And I didn't really have that much access to stage time for a really long time. I used to say this from the first year I started doing comedy, I, I would say that my, my career is a function of, of how much stage time I, I yeah, get. Yeah. So, so I would go on, I had this friend named, named Randy Vera, who I went to college and he was a, a, um, guitarist. He would play at bars in Boston in that in that alleyway near, yeah. near Nick um, near Nick's and, oh, and wow. near, yeah. near the comedy vault. And he would play at bars in there. And, and when he took a break, I would go up and perform for people who weren't weren't listening. But I was convinced that that was that that would count towards my 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 internship or my my. There's that thing, apprenticeship. My apprenticeship in in comedy that I needed to get on stage as much as possible. And I, I used to say, if if I were to get on stage every night, nothing could nothing could stop me. But I think that you weren't wrong. Like I think that there there's a lot of no. truth to that. Yeah. 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 Like getting on. Yeah. You're you're saying you're getting on stage in an alley, basically in between a music act in an alley. Um. Sometimes it was outside, but but usually it was just in the the basement of a bar, and this guy was playing music, and it was just people standing there, and they were all talking. Yeah, because that's what people do when the musician is on. Sure. And so they didn't stop when the musician was sure. off, and I would go up there and I would be yelling, and and but I I just knew that I I at least needed to to get that feeling of of saying these things out loud into a microphone in front of strangers and whether they laughed or not, and they never did, it, it didn't matter to me at that point. And I, I, th I think it was probably helpful. So this is just material. Uh, if, if you have material, I would love to bounce stuff back and forth. Um, oh, I'd love that. Okay, great, great, great. Yeah, I, I wrote down a few things. So this is just like, I, I don't know if you get to this stage where like, I, I, I did a version of this joke on the Frank Oz episode uh, a, a couple months ago, and then I've since had another thought on it. And so I've been, re I've been rewriting it, which is that a few years ago, I went for my annual checkup. And in, in middle age, you're your uh, medical checkup is much more involved. In your 20s, it's like a sitcom, like da 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 ba da boom ding <laughs> And in your 40s, it's like a mini-series. There's a lot more drama, sound effects, oxygen machines, heart rate monitors. The first episode ha ends with a cliffhanger. There's a test of some kind. In episode yeah. two, you get the results, but they're inconclusive. You start to think, there's no way there's going to be seven episodes of this. And the doctor's <laughs> like, stick with it till the end. You're like, I'm trying. You know, at, at a certain yeah. age, at a certain age, your annual checkup becomes your semi-annual, which becomes your quarterly. And then one day, <laughs> your doctor is your roommate, and then you're dead. Oh, man. I, I love this whole thing. And... I mean, you know this. Analogy jokes are really hard to pull off. <laughs> sure, they're they're really hard for whatever reason. I just it's it. I always thought of that this this joke that became like a formula, which is what's next. Yeah. And whenever I tried to write a what's next, it always bombed. So I just abandoned the entire formula. But the the analogy joke is really tough. But it's a great analogy. I think you can go further with the specifics like i immediately thought it's single camera there are no words to the there are no words to the theme song it's just it's it's but cuz I, I i also think you should get more specific maybe with a, an 80s sitcom because oh that's very good current a current good sitcom actually there's some overlap with dr drama right so you right you modern, say fa 80s, modern family yeah 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 there's a, yeah there's a there's a laugh track in the 80s sitcom yes. and and you, there's no laugh track in in your life and i i also wonder if you that's hilarious i mean i just want to pause uh, a moment to take in how funny an observation that is within the joke which is there's no laugh track. And if there was, 
that would be unnerving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also I I I just I really enjoy over the years watching you examine this this stuff that I'll tell you who was great at it was was Philip Roth, the author, was really great at examining aging from a from a different angle and and was was really beautiful at, at writing about it and it's it's always interesting to see a, a comedian who started off really young talk about being a, a an adult and then talking about <laughs> being a, a a father and and then oh, talking, talking about the aging process which I mean a lot of my ideas about how a 50-year-old man, because I just turned 50 over this summer, how a 50-year-old man behaves is is based on the comedians that we watched get older when we were yeah. when we were kids. And it's a it's a different my my favorite joke about turning 50 was was Todd Glass who had this joke where he would say, when you're a kid, somebody would say they're <laughs> they would make fun of 50 year olds, I'm 50. I can't believe I'm 50. And he and he says he says now Nowadays, somebody says they're 50 and they say, uh, hey, what's up? I'm 50. I'm in a band. We play every Wednesday. You should check <laughs> us out. Stepping away from my conversation with Gary Gullman to send a shout out to my favorite underwear, MeUndies, which I found listening to podcasts. And then I tried it, and I said, this is fantastically comfortable. It's like they pulled clouds out of the darn sky and made it into underwear, socks, bralettes, and loungewear. You can choose from endless styles in size extra small to 4XL, which I believe are all the sizes of human beings. They're sustainably soft, micro-modal, and new ultralight breathe fabrics are so comfy and breathable that you can move free and breathe. Or not. That's up to you. MeUndies has a great offer for working out listeners. First-time purchasers get 15% off and free shipping. To get your 15% off and free shipping, go to MeUndies.com slash That's MeUndies.com slash Can my voice get more excited than this? I think not. And now... Back to the show. Hit me with your some jokes. Well, I, I was thinking, I was thinking that when I get back on the road, I will have to address the the elephant in the room, which is the the pandemic. And so I I, I mean I I feel like I should have something to start out with. And I was thinking of this joke and. Basically, I want to know what the best, the best candy to use in this joke was, but I, I said I knew I knew people were going to be resistant to wearing masks because I remember sitting on planes as the the pilot or the head flight attendant would tell us that there was somebody on board who was allergic to peanuts and that we were not we were not allowed to have to have. <laughs> anything and these people couldn't maintain their willpower for a two-hour flight without a blank without a yeah. mr good bar or a yeah, outrageous yeah. Sure. or butterfinger yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, yeah. I but but the thing is is that everybody knows what's coming when you go into that and so the you're um, you're sort of searching for a punchline that i'm not even sure you need to finish the joke i feel like the joke's done it's oh, just wow. so it's so funny on its own. I, it's just it's like these people can't make it. Uh, yeah, I mean they can't make it two hours w- without a Mister Good Bar. And you know, newsflash: we're gonna be ma- wearing uh, cloth <laughs> on our face for a year. Yeah, and but the reaction to the people sitting with me, and they just assumed because I was a man of a certain age that when they rolled their eyes and went. <laughs> That yeah. I would be as as in, insensitive to the to the peanuts, but it's it's just it's it, it was it was quite obvious. It's to almost me. It, just yeah. It's almost also like the it's a, what you're describing the sort of the rolling your eyes, but you not reciprocating. It's almost like uh, you didn't give them the eye rolling high five. <laughs> 
Oh, I love that, man. That's uh, that's great. My joke about that, and you can have it if you want it. I haven't done it on stage. It's just something I. <laughs> all of us just think jokes these days. <laughs> I know. I say it as though it's my joke. Meanwhile, I just, I mean, it's an inner monologue. Um, <laughs> we were raised by people who called themselves the greatest generation. And in our lifetime, nothing like that has come along until this virus that asks us to wear a piece of cloth on our face. And the greatest generation is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know. I don't know if I want to make that kind of sacrifice. Oh, that's wild. That's so true. Yeah, I, I mean, I am fascinated by the greatest generation because my, my father was of that group. And I, I remember it, it just you could never complain in front of in front of my my dad because he had it so hard. I, I remember like wailing over stubbing my toe and and he said something like, uh, are there Nazis at the door? Oh my gosh. <laughs> the way you were carrying on, I thought there were Nazis at the door. Um. So I have this joke, which I, it occurred to me when I was rewatching The Great Depression. I might be in your territory with this joke, so I, I might have to pull it back. But you're the person to ask, which is when I was in high school, I joined the wrestling team and uh, I've never been much of an athlete. I've always gravitated towards sports where, where you can sort of blend in. <laughs> like, like Mike's playing soccer. Wait, well, I think that's Mike. Meanwhile, I'm lighting fires in the woods. But what's, <laughs> I think what's most painful for me about being a bad athlete is that I actually am competitive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Which is my Achilles heel, but I'm competitive. Uh, so I'm a fierce competitor uh, who loses. <laughs> which which is my which is my Achilles heel uh uh and I lose so basically I have a sprained Achilles heel and then I which I think is too much of a mixed metaphor but I but I this is the part that I thought was dangerously close to something you had which is um I feel like the loser is the unsung contributor to sports because someone has to lose for, for someone to win. And I've been willing to do it for 42 years, and it's not easy. You got to get out of bed every <laughs> morning and put your pants on one leg at a time. The first leg, it, it doesn't go on because you folded it weird, so the leg part is inverted, but then you punch <laughs> through it like a karate class, and then the left, the left one has a pen in the pants pocket, so it's like splotchy and navy blue. And then you start to put on a shirt and you realize it shrunk in the wash. So your belly's protruding, which is all just foreshadowing the metaphor of the wrestling match you're about to lose. And then, then, and then the final line is losing doesn't happen in a moment. It happens all day. Like you need to understand that when you see a kid lose a wrestling match, he also missed the bus. <laughs> I I can't get over the sentence. It's so good. A competitive person who loses. Gary, I can't tell you. I, I can't tell you how much I want that line to work, but it hasn't it hasn't cracked the bat with an really? audience yet. Yeah. I've thrown it up on stage and it hasn't quite connected. And I want I, I'm gonna keep trying because I feel like there's something there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the crux of the joke to me. And then examining the, the mindset of losing, it's something that hasn't been examined. There are documentaries about teams that, that win. So, but there are, there are iconic losers. There's the, the 80 <laughs> Soviet hockey team. That's right, and, that's right. And perhaps you can investigate your kinship with iconic losers, and and just also the the, the there's the, what's that expression? I show you show me a good loser, I'll show you a loser. It's it's just that's 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 
nonsense. There, there is a, a grace to losing. And there is, a, like, I was listening to this thing. I, I was listening to, to Kevin Garnett's biography, and he was talking about being congratulated after the 2008 championship by Kobe Bryant. And Kobe, in that moment, was already talking shit about what was going to happen the next time and in the next season and enjoy it while it lasts. And it's wow. like being a being a, a, a maniacal competitor is it, it has to be exhausting and and it's not comfortable, but he would win a lot. Imagine having that type of having that type of competitive streak and sure. and frequently losing and and not having that 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 outlet. That's and, right. That, yeah. There's uh, there's one other thing, which is there's another piece of this wrestling story, which I'm hoping to put in the show, which is there are three starting positions in high school wrestling. There's the I hump you. <laughs> there's the you hump me, and then there's the who humps who. That's called uh, neutral Greco-Roman, because the great existential question posed by the Greeks was indeed who humps who. And the Romans <laughs> answered that question with everybody, and that's why it's yes. called Greco-Roman. Oh, I love that. I wrote that this week. I'm excited about it because it's part of a story that's working about wrestling. But I, the Greco-Roman thing I came up with this week and I was like, oh, if that works, then that's going to be a really good puzzle piece for that story. Oh, it's a great joke. And also, it's one of those things where you go on at the cellar and sometimes somebody does a joke about Blockbuster and you're like, shoot, I can't do my Blockbuster. Nobody is going to follow or be before you with a Greco-Roman wrestling <laughs> Wait, joke. But maybe, the, maybe catch as catch can. <laughs> but tell me this, the losers thing, you have a great line about losing in the Great Depression. And I'm trying to remember what it is. I think you're talking about the one where I talked about that, that, that Vince Lombardi line, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. It's the only thing, yep. Yeah, and I said, well, what about collage? <laughs> Stepping away from my conversation with Gary Gullman to send a shout out to Freshly. <laughs> Freshly is something that my wife and I eat, my daughter and I eat. Uh, uh, I, I've sent it as gifts to my parents and to my brother and, and like to different folks. They're, they're essentially meals that are done. It's fresh and then uh, and simple and tasty and you just stick it in the oven. And then that, yeah, there's no, there's no cooking unless you count sticking something in the oven as cooking, in which case there's cooking. But sticking, yeah, that's it, that's it. Uh, ordering it's easy, go to Freshly, Dot com. That's a good URL. Choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better-for-you meals like steak, peppercorn, sausage, baked penne, chicken pesto bowl. I shouldn't do these ads when I'm hungry. Okay, right now, Freshly is offering to our Working It Out listeners $40 off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash Perbigs. That's Freshly.com slash Perbigs for $40 off your first two orders. Orders. Stop stressing about dinner. Go to freshly.com slash for bigs for $40 off your first two orders. What what else do you got for jokes? Do you have do you have other jokes? I had this other one about it was it was about the last time I actually did a live live show was with was with Colin um a week or two after after you performed in, in Connecticut. And so so when I was I stopped off at Whole Foods before I went down there to get some snacks. And the the new thing at Whole Foods is to ask that I mean they probably got this from from Trader Joe's where they, they make you their friend. And <laughs> the woman said, What are you doing tonight? And it happened to intersect with this decision to try and lie less. Oh my God. <laughs> um to, to <laughs> To not just tell lies just because it's simpler and easier, but just to just to tell the truth. And but I didn't want to say that I'm performing at a comedy show because of all the questions that yeah. 
that sure. brings about. So I just said, I'm going to a comedy show and thinking it will, will end. And then she says, who are you going to see? Of course, yes, yes, yes. And, and I said, you wouldn't know him. Yeah, I that's said, very you funny. Wouldn't, you wouldn't know him if he was buying $17 worth of <laughs> sliced mangoes from you. But the other sentence I had that I thought would be helpful was, um, I'm not one of these guys who needs to get recognized. Like I, I, I've heard of comedians who will ruin their, like famous, fam more famous than me, who if they don't get recognized, it, it could ruin their day. Yeah. And then, but I don't feel I'm in that category, but I'm also in a category of, I don't, I don't need to get recognized. I also don't need to not get recognized. I don't need any more reminders of the of the this thing yes. that I've I've dedicated 27 years of my life to and I'm a virtual unknown. <laughs> That's very funny. It's like that well first of all I'd like to unpack the lying thing. You make a proclamation to lie less. Why I'm curious why cuz I certainly like when people ask me if I sit in an airplane what do you do? And I always say, like, I'm a temp, you know, I work in an office. I'm an administrative <laughs> I always assistant. Say I'm a, I always say I'm a chemist. Yeah. Oh, a chemist is too, it's too hard to answer questions if I said I was a chemist. But nobody has a, a chem question. Oh, that's interesting. That's smart. But so why did you want to lie less in the first place? Kant. Oh, okay. Emmanuel, Emmanuel Kant. Yeah. Yeah. Immanuel Kant, I was reading this, this book called the, either at the Existentialist Cafe or the Existentialist Cafe, whatever it was, and they were talking about Kant and his policy on lying, how it negates yourself. And I remember studying him in college and, and he said, under no circumstances should you lie. And I said, what about if, if you're hiding Jews, should you lie? And then he said, and then, and then it was like, not even if you're hiding Jews, and, and, and I, I thought, well, that, that's a must lie. But then I thought, all right, unless I'm hiding Jews, I'm not going to lie. And then, or whatever the equivalent of hiding people under, under oppression is. And then I said, why do I, why can't I just accept myself and be myself? And I'll tell people that I'm, I'm doing this and, and it's, but it's, it's exhausting to have to, tell people you're a comedian in these circumstances because they they just make you feel the way you're the way my family makes me feel or or they'll say you make a living at that and it's just it, i i wind up feeling in, insulted but it's usually around my line usually is to keep me from having conversations about what i do i'm trying to find like, I think what you're describing about lying is very relatable because I feel like that's a self-examination that all of us go through. But I think that the part of not being recognized, I don't think it's relatable. <laughs> like, when you describe the hiding Jews in Nazi Germany, like, to me, I'm like, okay, I get it. Even though I'm not Jewish, I get it. But, like, the other stuff, it's like, like, I feel like it's almost like... Uh, it's almost maybe this is a is is a, even a worse version, or maybe this is maybe this is not as good as what your version is. Is like so she says, "Who are you going to see?" And I I said Colin Quinn, and she had never heard of him, and I thought that was a relief. <laughs> That's great, <laughs> you know. Yeah, because clearly she just doesn't have taste in comedy. If she doesn't have taste in comedy, then she's not going to know who Gary Gullman is. She wouldn't know who Gary Gullman is if he was buying nine pounds of prunes oh, at I, her register. I, I love that. I, I mean, because it's so petty, but it actually is sort of a, a, a swelling of that feeling of... I don't really care for her taste in comedy. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't, yeah, I love that. That's really helpful, man. Thank you. Because it also contextualizes you with Colin also. I think people know who Colin Quinn is to some degree. He was on Saturday Night Live. And, you know, yeah. so it's like, it's just, it, we, know, we know that he's a, he's a well-recognized comedian. He's been on Broadway, et cetera. Like, it just has just a certain contextualization. 
Kevin Pollack once gave me a piece of advice that was really smart when I opened for him, I believe in maybe Baltimore years ago, when I was starting out, where I was talking about sort of not being famous or well-known. And, and he goes, you know, you have to do a little bit of work for them because they think you're famous because you're, you're on the stage. Oh, wow. And, 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 so, and so, so you need to say, he goes, like, when I talk about, you know, working with Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men or this and that, I go, look, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm in the movie too, but that's Tom Cruise. That's, blah, you know what I mean? Like, he, yeah. he, he, he places the audience in the exact, you know, and that's actually where I ended up writing this joke for Thank God for Jokes years later, where I say I was hosting the Gotham Independent Film Awards, and, and in the room it's like Matt Damon and John Krasinski and Emily Blunt and all these people. And, lo- and I go, look, I get that you came here to see me tonight, but I also know at some point this week you told someone who you were going to see tonight, and they said who. <laughs> oh, I love that. Is there a nonprofit that you want uh, uh, the, the show to contribute to this week? Yes, Helen Keller International. They give children vitamin A supplements that cures blindness. And it's very efficient so that, that it doesn't cost a lot, like a dollar or something, to give a single, a single supplement. And over, over time, it, it, it cures blindness. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I'll contribute to them, and we'll put a link in the show notes so people can contribute as well. And uh, Gary, thanks a lot for doing this. I can't stop talking to you. <laughs> well, <laughs> we we are uh, we are like minded, and yeah. we, we love we love comedy. So this has been this has been a, a pleasure. It's always not nice to see you, and I can't wait till we can see each other in person again. Bunch of nerds sitting around talking about <laughs> jokes for two hours. <laughs> Working it out, cause it's not done. Working it out, cause there's no That's gonna do it for another episode of Working It Out. Gary Goldman, holy cow. I love that guy. You can follow him on Instagram at Gary Goldman. On Twitter, at Gary Goldman. Uh, try to see him live, because he is absolutely one of the best. Our producers of Working It Out are myself, along with Peter Salomon and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky, associate producer Mabel Lewis. Thanks to my consigliere, Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. Special thanks to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers. Further music, as always, a very special thanks to my wife, the poet Jay Hopestein. Our book, The New One, you know this by now, but if you don't have it, it's a real labor of love. It, it, love. We wub you, and we wub this book. I flubbed that line, but I wubbed how I flubbed it. That's a callback to the Sklar Brothers episode if you didn't listen to it. Uh, our new book, The New One, is at your local bookstore. As always, a special thanks to my daughter, Una, who created our radio fort. Thanks most of all to you out there who are listening to our show and you are telling your friends and you are telling your enemies. We, we're just here working it out. See you next time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>